Hello, everybody. Today is Wednesday, February 20th, and we are bringing you Block Digest number 158 at block height 563,918. What is up, guys? Woohoo, Ben. We're almost through February, almost through the winter. Bring on the spring. Man, got some sunshine today. First sunshine in about five days. Feeling good. Blood pressure's a little high, but that's all right. Just a lot going on. How are you doing this morning, Janine? I am I am so fired up about one of the stories today. It's gonna I thought I was gonna be fired up up about the first one I do, but I'm even more fired up about the second one. I'm telling you, people are just getting us all riled up, coming in hot today. But uh there's also some cool stuff going on. So yeah, you wanna just jump us right into what at least some interesting developments are going on, Shinobi? Nope. Nope. I'm going to yell and scream and call people stupid um, and, and and not not give proof on why they're stupid. Mr. Ad hominem. Mm -hmm. We're going to we're going to group ad hominem a lot today. All right. I imagine so. All righty. All righty. So uh, once again. Uh, this seems to be becoming quite a regular thing. Uh, Blockstream has some nice developments for us. Uh, so we covered a while back the uh, Schnorr uh, multi-signature uh, protocol, Musig. And Blockstream has actually merged that into uh, code now. It's been pulled into the uh, SecP256K1 uh, ZKP library, which is kind of a fork of the main crypto library uh, that Bitcoin uses uh, with some zero knowledge proof stuff used for confidential transactions on the liquid sidechain. And this is actually uh, operational code now, so people can tinker around and play with it. Although I would definitely argue that it's not quite at the point where uh, I would say this should be merged into Bitcoin proper so far. And yes, uh, Kevin Kelby in the chat, that is literally the first time I have ever said the name of that library from, or from memory without fucking it up. So you just witnessed a historical moment here. But... Um, <laughs> That's understandable. It's one of those where, yeah, you got to kind of walk through it. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, so there, there are still some kind of uh, limitations here uh, as far as actual use in practice based on an implementation. 
And so, like, I like I'm still at the point where I'm not expecting Schnorr to be rushed out anytime soon because, like, in all honesty, if we don't deploy it with full music functionality, like brought to a, a polished state, I really don't think it's worth it because, like, most of the benefit or a large part of the benefit, I should say, is the ability to actually have multi-signature constructs that just boil down to one signature. And so really, I don't think it's worth the time and the, the deployment effort and hassle to try and roll Schnorr out without this actually fleshed out. And, you know, based on what developers are saying, it's likely that Schnorr with Musig functionality and Taproot are likely all going to be rolled out in a single um, soft fork. But so Musig kind of introduces uh, some new problems and vulnerabilities that we've gone over before, but I'll just refresh them so that, you know, everybody can think about this with fresh eyes. But one of the things that's necessary to do when creating a signature using ECDSA and pretty much any Bitcoin transaction is uh, a random nonce. And that kind of, you know, serves the purpose of adding some randomness to how the signature is generated in a way that still allows it to be validated, but prevents somebody from taking successive signatures um, from the same key and using that to actually reverse back to the actual private key from information leaked by those signatures. And it's actually part of the ECDSA spec to have a, a properly selected nonce to avoid that. And really there, there's kind of two ways you can go here. Um, uh, initially when ECDSA was first defined, it was kind of just having a secure random nonce which in practice to be really confident requires a true random number generator, which is one kind of expensive and two, it's still itself kind of subjected to environmental biases because a, a true random number generator, it's still drawing entropy from something. And the, the problem is here, if you reuse the same nonce in a signature from the same key, you're leaking information that severely narrows the search space that somebody has to look through to actually get your private key out of it. And so it's critical to never reuse the same notes. But a more complex aspect of this is it doesn't have to be exactly the same notes when creating a signature to leak enough information to narrow that search space. Even just having low or high digits in that nonce be the same is still enough to narrow that to the point where it's it's practically attackable. And so the ECDSA spec and Bitcoin itself started moving towards deterministic nonces, where you take a hash of a, a private secret and the message being signed and then use that as the nonce. Because for each individual message, it's going to result in a different nonce. So you're never reusing the same one in a signature from the same key. And this kind of solves the issue for normal Bitcoin transactions. But the problem with Schnorr is for this MuSig construct, it's an interactive process. And so what this means is in, in practice, when you are 
passing things around between um, individuals, it's possible when you select a notes or one's deterministically used for, let's say, you to sign something and then have that, sig that signing process fail before it's finished. And if you reuse the notes that you picked, but I change something as another participant, it, it can start leaking that information again. And so it's it's kind of a wholly different environment as far as crafting a signature in regards to note selection. And so one of the things they've done in actually implementing this is introduce kind of a session ID so that it's not just the secret and the message. There's also a session ID for each signing session that's unique. And this kind of comes with its own complications, even though it in theory, solves the issue. And that's one, you either have to go back to using a secure random number generator for uh, selecting a session ID, which is again, expensive, not widely available to everybody and still potentially subject to environmental bias. Or you have to have persistent memory that is absolutely guaranteed to not roll back to previous states if something is interrupted, if there's a power loss, if there's a failure in the signing session. And that would pretty much be a counter that is constantly incremented up. And so you would either use a secure source of randomness or this counter. And both of them require like a specific thing. You need the random number generator to be absolutely secure if you're using random session IDs. And if you're using a counter, you have to be absolutely sure that that counter always moves up every single time and that nothing can happen to roll things back to a previous count the next time you go use that key to sign for something. And so this kind of changes the potential attack surface here. And that's a serious issue because if you screw this up when constructing a signature for this, it can leak enough information for somebody to practically reverse engineer your private key. And this is particularly very dangerous when it comes to virtual machines because a virtual machine could be reset or shut down in a way where that counter is not incremented in memory. And that leaves this actually exploitable. Although like they do um, point out in the, their post on this, if somebody is capable of shutting down that virtual machine, then you're already at a very big security risk because somebody is able to interfere with the operations of your machine like that. And so one of the things they've done to kind of add another layer of security here is the API for interacting with this library does not allow pretty much coming back to a previous signing session in the middle of things. But like, again, there's still like the, the, these core issues here that add new attack surfaces, new surface areas where things can go wrong. And pretty much they're still working on trying to use the sign to contract technique, which Andrew Palestra 
has um, done some presentations on, you can find, I'll actually try to find the link on one of those and put them in the show notes after. And also trying to use zero knowledge proofs to kind of prevent those risks of having a nonce reused. And they're pretty confident that in the long term, things can be constructed in a way that removes these extra risks that come with using MuSig for multisig. But, you know, the, the, the core issue is here, it, this is awesome that this is actually working code now and people can test and experiment with this. But like, this is still, in my opinion, not good enough to actually roll into Bitcoin proper. And I'm sure that that opinion is shared by people at Blockstream and following and working on this. Like the, the risk of, you know, having to depend on either a secure source of randomness or the risk of interaction with memory holding a counter being fucked up is, is just too big as far as putting people's money at risk. And so, yeah, uh, it's kind of a long technical rant, but I want to end it with some more applause for Blockstream and uh, hopefully some patience from everybody to actually see this brought to a, a final polished level before people start screaming, where is Schnorr? Like, take it slow, get it right. Yeah, man, this is uh, super exciting. I mean, just, I mean, yeah, you're right. It's technical, but I mean, if you understand like the way that you're able to aggregate these signatures and then do these more complex uh, configurations to where you can basically create different models to uh build out from as far as varying levels of uh trust and i don't know you know the uh coin joins you can increase those i mean and I, yeah we need somewhere to test it outside of just testnet i mean and uh liquid seems to be really loading themselves up with some good tech here i mean you know schnorr and ct is one of those like major things where you know, when, <laughs> whenever lightning was just like uh, still being all talked about, these things started to come up and started talking about those two. And, you know, in seeing these efficiencies like being put on somewhere to where they could be tested with some real uh, economic value moving around. Yeah, it's uh, it's not deployed yet. Okay, they're just supporting it. So it's like you could fork liquid and implement it. Yeah. So, well, that's cool. I mean, you know. Yeah, let's, uh, you know, if you're out there and you've got something to where you want to use Schnorr or CT, work liquid and use it. I mean, I really think that that federated sidechain model has got a lot to do with the future and the way that things are going to be built out. Like, uh, and, you know, like as far as introducing these sort of new little narrow paths of problems, I mean, that kind of comes with all these uh, softwares, you know, upgrades. We're kind of starting to see a little bit of that on Lightning where, you know, people just sort of, fall into some old problems that we've been trying to avoid for a long time and, you know, got to find ways to work around that. And it's not until it's on mainnet and kind of being passed around that we're starting to sort of see why that needs to be done. And, uh, you know, it'll be similar here. So yeah, really great to see Schnorr and CT out on, you know, a federated side chain that somebody can really start doing some experimentation on a way to build out at least a little ecosystem for, you know, different markets. It's, uh, it's really interesting if you, uh, you know, can sort of see the long road on all of it. I, yeah, it's kind of technical, but 
I'm kind of technical. It's really technical. And I mean, yeah, it's interesting. Zero knowledge proofs too, man, things are going crazy over there. Yeah. They kind of want to use, um, if I, I'm like, I watched a talk on it a while ago, but it's been a while, but I'm pretty sure like what they want to do there is use the zero knowledge proofs to prove that nonces aren't being reused so that like, there's no risk of actually signing something or no, I'm not, not that nonces aren't reused, that things are not changed. So like, so that like you and me have a multi-sig and we're going through a signing round after one failed, they want to use the zero knowledge proof so that you can prove to me that you're still using the same notes so that I don't sign something that leaks information you can use to like regenerate my private key. Wow. It's really interesting what you can really do with a federated sidechain. Like, I mean, you know, ever since I really kind of started thinking about the way liquid could be built out, it's always sort of captured my interest because you could just sort of do so much with it. And if you know what you're doing and these guys know what they're doing really. Yeah. I mean, we've been seeing lots of, you know, good news coming from these guys, bad news coming from some other guys. We'll, uh, we'll get to that eventually, but yeah, kudos, like really, yeah. Round of applause for Blockstream. I know people like to say that, oh, you know, they control the world, but they are building out amazing things with the satellite and liquid. And now you're starting to see all these uh, amazing pieces of tech that we'd like to see maybe all rolled into a big update for Bitcoin one day. So yeah, really appreciate all the work going on over there. Mm-hmm. All right, so Janine, you want to give us a little update with what's going on with this uh, rage quit <laughs> over in Ethereum? <laughs> yeah, it's been a pretty crazy week for Ethereans. Apparently, that's what they're called now, Ethereans. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's not even a joke. It's like in Ethereum news articles, they are, they're called Ethereans. Um so apparently they have some serious uh, toxicity issues of their own to deal with because for anyone who doesn't know, Afri Shodan was the volunteer hard fork coordinator and longtime contributor for Ethereum up until recently. He was also the release manager for Parity Tech, which is the second most popular Ethereum client, despite all of its woos. And he's also the moderator for, or was the moderator for the Ethereum subreddit, which as far as I can tell is where most of the vitriol was coming from in the last week or so. So from to start off from my perspective, um, he's been one of the people who I always saw as more self-critical about Ethereum and the Ethereum Foundation. Um, he was one of the only people I remember who thought it was a problem that there was like semi-secret or fully secret development meetings going on that were making decisions before they were even public about, you know, the roadmap and stuff. And I know I've quoted him at least once, uh, like at least one of his jokes in the past about his own node getting stuck on the wrong chain during, I think it was one of the attempts uh, at the, maybe the, I think it was before the Constantinople hard fork was starting to be scheduled. Um, even as the supposed fork coordinator, he was having issues, which was pretty funny. And I think the tension, which finally exploded recently, probably started building up at least by September of last year, where he made another joke that said, um, quote, please stop deploying dApps on Ethereum. We are running at capacity. And even though he, uh, you know, he was the 
he was obviously very involved with Ethereum at that time. I think he's been involved at least since 2015 from the start. Um, he even recommended below that tweet that people use Ethereum Classic because it had more capacity at the time. Um, so you can probably guess that that didn't sit well with Ethereans who are, I found quite hypocritical in their multi-coinerism because by saying on one hand, they say that multi-coinerism is great, but then on the other, they say it's a conflict of interest if their own developers practice it too. Um, so that's quite interesting to see. Um, now around the time of the uh, ETH Denver conference in uh, Denver, Colorado, hashtag Buffacorn um, on Friday, uh, on February 15th, after that um, Polkadot delivers what Serenity ought to be, change my mind. If anyone doesn't know, Serenity is supposed to be the last stage of Ethereum development evolution or whatever. Um, and unfortunately, he deleted all of his tweets before I caught onto the drama. So that tweet in particular was not archived. Um, but I've seen it a number of times in a number of different places. So I'm, I'm mostly confident that it's an accurate uh, quote from him. Uh, according to ETH News, uh, they actually said that he claimed the original tweet was meant to stir up discussion. So again, it was another case of he's trying to be self-critical. He's not he, I mean, he may actually believe that Polkadot is better. Um, if you don't know, Polkadot is the proof of authority private blockchain being developed by Parity. And so I find it hilarious that whether, whether he intended that as a joke or not, um, it's very obvious that Ethereans feel threatened by such a blockchain because why? Aren't they supposed to be decentralized or something? Uh, are they in competition? with a private proof of authority blockchain? Is there something we don't know? Um, another contentious aspect of why he came under fire on social media was because he called for one of the Ethereum improvement proposal editors to step down on Valentine's Day, February 14th, over a disagreement about how the Ethereum improvement proposal 867, which was for the standardization of recovery proposals uh, for last is being handled. Um, and after deleting all of his tweets and changing like account images and stuff, he came back on February 17th to say that he would no longer be responding on Gitter, Skype, Discord, Slack, Wire, Twitter, or Reddit, but that you could try to contact him at maybe reply and then his website domain, which I thought was quite funny. Um, and so after he said that there was a lot of confusion about whether he was just taking a break from social media or was quitting Ethereum itself. And Maria Paula, who is the organizer of ETH Berlin, who we've also talked about before in another case, um, she tweeted sometime after that that she was disappointed in the Ethereum community um, and a bunch of other things. Unfortunately, she has since made her account private, so those tweets are not available anymore unless you are following her. Hudson Jameson from the Ethereum Foundation tweeted that this was a sad day for Ethereum. On February 19th, which was yesterday, Afri came back again to clear up all the rumors um, about whether he left Ethereum saying, I did not quit social media, I quit Ethereum. I did not go dark, I just left the community. I'm no longer coordinating hard forks, building test nets or contri contributing otherwise. I did not work on Polkadot, I never did. I worked on Ethereum. I did not hate Ethereum, I loved it. 
note that all of my contributions from 2015 up until today, including hard fork coordination, were unpaid with the sole exception for my work on the parity Ethereum client. I ask for understanding that I'm no longer interested in spending my free time here. He added, if you have an exciting project that really matters and does not come with a token, send me a mail. I care for radical decentralization and privacy enhancing projects, data, security, and empowerment. I have a lot of free time now, end quote. Um, and just before the show started, I actually saw Ashley Tyson tweet. I think she is associated with the Web3 Foundation. She said, what the Ethereum Foundation seems to be overlooking in the Afrigate, and now apparently it's Afrigate, um, post-mortem, is the strange expectation that unpaid open source devs and contributors have any obligation to answer anyone about their motivations, their work or lack thereof, or their conflicts of interest. Ethereum was unbelievably lucky to get to this point with volunteers because they believe or because they did make enough money off an early Ethereum investment to not give a fuck. But this would, or this should be an expectation for how we, this should not be an expectation for how we sustainably grow a network. There is a massive incentive misalignment here. Afri's position as release manager was not tied to Parity's Serenity grant. He volunteered. Try and find someone with years of experience shipping mission critical code in multi-billion dollar industries to work for free. I'll wait, end quote. Um, there, there was a longer thread, but that was the significant part to me. Um, so besides the comment that I already made about how funny it is that Ethereans are going nuts over the possible conflict of interest uh, with parody and all of that, which doesn't seem to really have much weight. I also find it depressing that once again, this proves that the roles of foundations or even founders rewards in the case of Zcash uh, in supposedly fostering the funding of development, which you know has been one of those points that they criticize Bitcoin for a lot of the time. Um, that basically has a giant bullshit hole in it. And I believe we talked about this issue in the Zcash community at the end of episode 109, where the Zcash Foundation had to pay off their primary wallet maintainer, who was also working for free and then became angry at the fact that they were having to, I think, also deal with hard fork difficulties and the fact that they weren't getting paid for all of this work. Um, they had gotten paid through, I think, a small grant a year before, but they hadn't applied for another one in time, something like that. It was confusing. But point is, the idea that these foundations are actually having, like, they're serving their role in what they're supposed to be doing, which is, you know, adding some centralization at the benefit of funding development doesn't seem to have very much water anymore because the people who are actually doing a lot of work, very critical work, are not only not getting paid, but obviously they're having to deal with backlash just for having some self-criticism about the project. Uh, so now it looks like AFRI has left Ethereum. And as I, I read in the quote, he's looking for some other project that does not have a token, keyword, no tokens. Um, and I think I remember actually saying on the show before that because he was one of the few people that I appreciated in Ethereum, that I said he should come over to Bitcoin if he ever leaves Ethereum. And it turns out, uh, well, the first part's happened. I don't know about the second part, but uh, it would be great if people could be a bit more encouraging. Um, even though I should note, I don't agree with most of his positions in terms of, you know, 
revoke or reversing transactions or doing recoveries of the lost ether because that impacts immutability. Obviously that would be a contentious issue if you did come into Bitcoin. But um, I do think that, you know, having a person who is obviously talented and can be self-critical of the project they're working on and is willing to do that um, mostly for free, uh, that's still an important thing to have. Yeah, and he's uh, you know looking at getting into stuff that's privacy enhancing and security and you know I mean it looks like he's uh, you know one of these guys that I really wouldn't mind sitting down having a drink with to talk about these things. I mean you know this whole thing kind of spurred out of yeah this past week you know there's been a lot of stuff coming out of ETH Denver and discussions coming from that and stemming from that and. I mean, it's kind of a mixed bag, right? You're, you're seeing things where it's like, obviously like still a pump fest and like people just pumping things up. But at the same time, I saw a lot of interesting discussion where people weren't even really mentioning, you know, what they were doing with the token or anything like that. They were just trying to figure out ways to build out the actual idea of like a social network that is actually censorship resistant or uh you know they're really passionate about the privacy aspects it's like i'm starting to see these guys come out and you know i know a lot of people were critical of andreas and what he's going on over there but honestly i've seen it in like i mean in the colorado blockchain slack people talking about what they heard andreas say and they're rethinking things about the history of ethereum in the way that this whole ecosystem kind of got built out and they're starting to rethink things about immutability and security and what all that means. And so, I mean, yeah, it was kind of a whole <laughs> hashtag buffer corn thing. I mean, uh, honestly, I was kind of uh, invited and I, I couldn't make it just because of timing issues. And uh, I also kind of wanted to sit back and sort of observe what was going on without being in the middle of it. And um, there definitely was some sort of, uh, you know, yeah, you could see the Ethereum Foundation consensus sort of like affecting development by saying like, oh, this is the best project here. I'm going to reward this project with this amount of money and this thing will keep going forward. And it's, you know, it's all based kind of on earning a paycheck and that proof of authority blockchain you're talking about. I think that's a real thing. And I think some of these developers are really starting to clue into what you know, we're trying to build out and seeing that this isn't necessarily the best answer that they're caught up in. And yeah, it would be kind of a, uh, you know, controversial thing for them to come back to Bitcoin. But yeah, I mean, like this is open source. Anybody's free to come and go as they wish. And, you know, maybe uh, learn some lessons from over there and going to rethink things about the way uh, development should actually grow. But, you know, yeah, it's a, uh, it's been a crazy week for Ethereum. They had the Denver thing, this thing happened, and a lot of people got upset. And uh, what was the thing with the fee issues? We still haven't, you know, figured that out. It's like they got a, a block mine with 2,100 ETH and another block mine with like 3,100 this morning. It's like that, that's been another issue going on where it's like, what's going on here? And they got the Constantinople for It's interesting in the sense of like observations of what's going on. Yeah, I don't I don't think that's not the the transaction with the huge fee isn't a story on the news desk. So I'll just briefly say there was apparently a transaction um somewhere last few days, I don't remember the timestamp, but there was a transaction where the person 
I mean, assuming accidentally they paid a fee that I think it was worth like $300,000 worth of ether, something like something crazy. Um, And, you know, to be fair, that has happened before in Bitcoin, like years ago, I think. I don't remember it happening happening recently. Um, And that's, you know, that's because of poorly designed wallets, or at least in the case of Bitcoin, that was the reason. I don't know what the reason was this time, because I don't think anyone figured out who did the transaction. But yeah, that happened. Um, And I guess some people were speculating that that was Afri, like he rage quit because he got mad that he paid too large of a fee. But I mean, (laughs) I don't don't think so, guys. Like, that would be really stupid. Yeah, I was kind of laughing at that one. I think it's a much more likely about, you know, the way that the whole Constantinople hard fork coordination kind of being reliant on parity. And, you know, it's very evident that there's just like, uh, you know, some real pain issues going on with the way that uh, that's all being done. And he recognizes it. So, you know, uh, wish him the best. I hope he, uh, you know, goes on to some of these uh, privacy enhancing uh, projects and work in security like uh more power to you, Afri. Yeah, you know, I think this kind of just shows the, a constant pattern in Ethereum, and it's anybody who is actually realistic or honest about its severe limitations and architectural problems winds up getting chased away by the foundation-supported and sometimes even funded mob who just scream magic unicorns and, and fairies are going to solve everything. You know, I think this kind of segues into a lot of my thoughts on the next story uh, with Coin Center's response to the CFTC's request for information regarding Ethereum. And so I'll try and be really succinct as or as much as I can, but I, I kind of actually for the first time have some thoughts written out on some of the key questions and just let me, let me put it this way. At this point, like the last shred of respect or hope I have for Coin Center has just gone out the window with this reply. Like they have absolutely no fucking business lobbying or trying to educate congressmen about things when they are so clearly unable to understand core fundamental things themselves. So let's just get into the first question. Um, which was, what was the impetus for developing Ether and the Ethereum network, especially relative to Bitcoin? And Coin Center's response were um, pretty much um, arbitrarily complex smart contracts and building decentralized dApps like Uber and Twitter on a blockchain. So, yeah, I'll start with the Uber and Twitter on a blockchain. That's not happening. That's not scalable. To try and dump the entire traffic of something like Uber or Twitter onto a blockchain is delusional. That is not a goal. That That is something you do with a server, which I'll touch on in, in a little bit with one of the next questions. They also pointed out creating provably scarce digital property you can trade. You've literally been able to do this on Bitcoin since like 2012 or 2013 when Counterparty and MasterCoin were first created. That's absolutely in no way novel or unique to Bitcoin. Or I mean, Ethereum. 
Like Bitcoin has been doing that for years. Now, as far as the arbitrary complex smart contracts, this I love because this is just so obviously demonstrating their complete inability to understand anything. So an example that they gave, or two examples they gave, one was paying a, a coin center employee with a smart contract that would just loop and automatically pay Peter his salary every two weeks. While you can do that trivially with a link of time-locked Bitcoin transactions. You make an output, you sign it with a time lock. You time lock the output that doesn't go into somebody's salary yet, and then make another transaction spending that and repeat that in a chain. And all they have to do is keep those transactions and submit them to the blockchain when it's time to get paid and the time locks expired. And there you go. He, he can pay himself automatically. Like it's that simple. The, the second example was especially absurd and especially illuminating of just complete ignorance. It was having a smart contract on the Ethereum blockchain that would take money and then communicate with light bulbs on a skyscraper. So you could pay to make it turn red or blue. And they point out that you could do this on Bitcoin and just have an address that when it's seen to get money would make the lights turn a different color. And here's where things get absolutely retarded. It'll only work on Bitcoin if you have special hardware that's audited that'll be foolproof. But when you put the smart contract on Ethereum in control of this, you can audit it and prove that it does what it's going to do. No, because that Ethereum smart contract still has to talk to hardware in the real world. You still have to trust that hardware in the real world looks at that Ethereum smart contract and does what it's supposed to. It can be programmed to do something else. It can just ignore the smart contract and not do anything. Being able to audit a smart contract on Ethereum that interacts with some physical thing in the real world does absolutely nothing to prove that that thing in the real world will do what it's supposed to. Having an Ether smart contract instead of just a Bitcoin address that something watches on the blockchain provides literally zero benefits in this example whatsoever. And yet here they are responding to a government regulatory institute trying to pretend like it does. They have no fucking clue what they're talking about. The second question, what are the current functionalities and capabilities of Ether and the Ethereum network as compared to the functionalities and capabilities of Bitcoin? Arbitrary smart contracts. This just takes us back to the same example, except in reverse. It's pointless. Any smart contract that does something is going to depend on an oracle. That oracle has to tell the blockchain what is happening and what it should do. And you can do the exact same thing on Bitcoin. Hell, after Schnorr, we can actually have an oracle that's hundreds of people. So that it's not just a couple people deciding something. There's no serious differentiation there. 
Third question, how is the developer community currently utilizing the Ethereum network? More specifically, what are the prominent use cases or example that demonstrate the functionalities and capabilities of the Ethereum network? DApps, things like Uber and Twitter on the blockchain. Or one of the more concrete examples that they gave was the Ethereum DNS smart contract. That's that name coin. Something that's been around since like 2010 and can do a whole DNS system without Ethereum contracts. And I am very confident personally that that same thing can be built on top of Bitcoin in a way that doesn't distort the incentives and just uses Bitcoin as the token to actually register a domain. You do not need Ethereum for that. And then tokens and collectibles again, which as I'm gonna repeat, have been done on Bitcoin for years, rare Pepe. Now the eighth question, this really got my blood boiling. Does the Ethereum network face scalability challenges? If so, please describe such challenges and any potential solutions. What analyses or data sources could be used to assess concerns regarding the scalability of the underlying Ethereum network, and in particular, concerns about the network's ability to support the growth and adoption of additional smart contracts? Their answer was literally just talking about transaction throughput. That's it. They, the, the entire framing of their answer was that it just needs more transactions a second, and it can scale. At no point in any way did they bring up the dynamic of how that increases node costs, further centralizes things, literally just at the end of the day turns it into a centralized database that is not distributed, not secure, because who's ever in control of that can change rules, do whatever the hell they want, or even mention the fact that right now with nothing actually being used, People are already dependent on centralized services like that. Like th th their answer is a complete joke and seriously is, is just a hair's width away from just defending a scam to the CFTC. Like it's fucking absurd. And then the real cherry on the top. The 14th question. In light of Ether's origin as an outgrowth from the Ethereum Classic blockchain, are there potential issues that could make Ether's underlying blockchain vulnerable to future hard forks or splintering? Coin Center stated that it's not clear which chain has claimed to be the original chain. They are saying that it is not black and white evident that what is now known as Ethereum Classic continued to exist before the current Ethereum chain, continued to exist as the current Ethereum chain was created, and continued to exist after it, linearly, and are attempting to effectively rationalize that businesses just need to come up with practices for figuring these things out. That it's not objectively clear that the thing that existed before, during, and after a new thing is created is the original asset. So in other words, 
they're pretty much trying to lead the CFTC towards putting exchanges in exclusive control of defining what is what. They're attempting to push the CFTC in the direction of allowing exchanges to just go, you know what, all of this price history, this commodity uh, data that, that's connected to gold, no, that no, gold isn't gold anymore, aluminum is. We're just going to apply all of this price data to aluminum, a completely different thing with a completely different supply rule in nature. Like, seriously, fuck Coin Center. Like, they are malicious, incompetent, and have no business whatsoever attempting to educate, air quotes, people in our government who will decide how laws apply to these systems. None whatsoever. Man, yeah. I honestly read through this, like, you know, uh, last night I was just kind of raging after reading it. Like, I, you know, I know uh, some people with Coin Center and it's just like, uh, you know, yeah, it was kind of depressing to read whenever you see like all these, as with Bitcoin, like Bitcoin, and it tries to compare the Ethereum network to the Bitcoin network. And like you're saying, I mean, there's just like these things that have been around for a long time, like MasterCoin and name coin and you know rare pepes i mean and like even the whole collectible idea like that wasn't even really a digital collectible like we discussed on previous episodes it's just you know a piece of artwork that someone created that doesn't really have any real uh way to enforce its uh scarcity where like rare pepe it's a pretty interesting concept with like you know they got cards and open dimes and like little trading get togethers like it's a it's an interesting way to actually try and build that out and um you know to see them yeah sort of mislead people that are writing laws which could possibly get more people you know heavily invested in a system that is very apparent just in this previous constantinople fork that it's it's you know it is susceptible to other chain splits and I mean, it is crazy to me that the, you can, how can you say like, we don't know which chain is the original chain whenever you could just like look at the market cap, you could look at some of the things just recently, like an Ethereum developers, you know, ETC developers have left, you know, ETC developers have said they're going to work with ETH developers. I mean, it's very apparent. And I mean, it's kind of crazy. I mean, I kind of get it in the sense that it's a, government lobbying group that is put together in order to try and write favorable legislation for certain individuals. And I mean, like, that's where it's like, uh, you know, it's not necessarily to try and educate the uh, larger public in mass. It's, it's in order to help increase some people's positions. And I think now more than ever, uh, you know, if you're listening, you know, you should go to the CFTC site, you should take the time to fill out uh, these questions in response to, uh, you know, Coin Center's got a megaphone down there. They already got offices in D.C. They got lots of funding. I mean, it's uh, similar to 2X, you know. How did you stand up with that? I mean, we needed to be vocal and we needed to get together, and this is a similar situation. I mean, uh, it's – I know people don't like the idea of states writing uh, legislation to try and legislate this ecosystem, but if they do do it the wrong way – you know, it could really lead to just a lot more people getting hurt in the long run. So, uh, 
yeah, this was a little upsetting. But uh, yeah, I need to go do that too. What is Ethereum? And like, uh, you know, help them define it. So I'm going to go do that a little bit later this evening. So if you guys could do it too, that'd be great. Uh, do you guys have any more comments on this before we move into uh, something a little bit more lighthearted? Janine? We got to get a comment out of here. I mean, are we still in the coin center? Yeah. Yep. I mean, yeah, I kind of, I, I saw them, I, I could tell that they were favorable to Ethereum from very early on. And I think isn't, I mean, I assume the reason is because they get funding from Andreessen Horowitz and Andreessen Horowitz has a whole, you know, Ethereum branch of, or Ether branch of his uh, capital business. So it, it doesn't surprise me. I find it unfortunate that that would taint their legal perspective because I'm sorry, like for anyone who hasn't been around long enough, it's so obvious that the way Ethereum was launched was so sketchy in so many ways that I, I, I'm really skeptical of anyone who is trying to like maneuver around that and justify it in any way. So yeah, I'm disappointed that that, I mean, like, you know, I read the, the letter that Jerry Brito wrote about you know, the need for privacy in financial technology. And that was still good. Um, so it's not like they're completely bad, but yeah, just anything from them about Ethereum, I, I've, I haven't from the beginning when I noticed that they were favorable to it for obvious reasons that I don't rely on them for legal advice about Ethereum because that's something where, you know, they have a lot of influences uh, affecting their opinions. It's kind of crazy that we did see them like, uh, you know, that guy Peter uh, stand up at the Congress or the Senate whenever he was given that testimony. And he was really kind of actually saying some things that were hitting, you know, all the right notes as far as actually getting people to start investigating and doing their own research on this. And yeah, it's um, it's upsetting. And uh, like you're saying about the whole ETH, uh, you know, sale and the way that that whole thing went down and then the ensuing Dow and the hard fork. It's just, you can sort of follow the money and you can see the development and the roadmap and the way it all played out. And I'll tell you, again, it's interesting. You, you see these guys, there's a lot of developers over there in that community and I talked to them and they are starting to just sort of figure out the problems the way that whole went. So um Let's uh, go ahead and transition into something, though. A little bit more Bitcoin. All right. What is Bitcoin? <laughs> okay. So there was a funny post uh, the other day from our buddy Stopping to Crypt. It's a great little clip from the Atlanta Bitcoin Conference. Daniel Kratowitz from the Nakamoto Institute, best known for his views on the idea of hyper-Bitcoinization, was asked by Zach Fold, what is Bitcoin? At which point Daniel kind of fumbled through a definition based on the Bitcoin Genesis block and tradition that best follows the white paper. Zach followed up with a great question based on Daniel's definitions in the past and asked, quote, in addition to that, do you still subscribe to Bitcoin as being the sum of all forks or just SV? Close quote, which led to like this hilarious bumbling through a description that involved rules, traditions and communities of people with some curb your enthusiasm music in the background. And, uh, you know, it was it's really funny. And uh, in later on the thread, 
stop and decrypt really uh, broke down Daniel's main points, which uh, were these. Uh, this is all, all quotes from uh, Daniel's statement there at the TabCon. Quote, I used to define Bitcoin based on the Genesis block, and I would say that any tradition which derives from the Bitcoin Genesis block is Bitcoin. But since I have concluded with tradition, I think is uh, since but since I have concluded which tradition I think is going to be the winner, I now define the winner as Bitcoin SV. And this and that is the closest to the original white paper. I think that Bitcoin is a tradition. So you have to talk about it in terms of the community of people, but it also described as a set of rules in the white paper. So this depends on whether you think the community, this community of people, if they change their behavior, that's still Bitcoin, close quote. And this all sounds pretty ill-defined and not very well thought out, kind of odd for someone whose opinions have been well-respected over the years. So someone on Twitter asked if he could clarify what he was trying to say, which he responded, quote, Bitcoin is a protocol defined in the white paper, and it's also a superorganism of people, and I didn't know which I wanted to emphasize, close quote, which uh, you had a great response to that Shinobi telling him that the coin supply isn't in the white paper, the peer-to-peer -peer protocol isn't in the white paper, the scripting system isn't in the white paper, the virtual machine spec isn't in the white paper, literally almost everything defining the protocol isn't in the white paper. And uh, after that, the comments just sort of drifted away and it became pretty apparent that some of these uh, people who have highly regarded opinions on Bitcoin in the past have lost their way a little bit. And it's really not hard to blame them, though, for fumbling through these questions because it really isn't the easiest thing to answer. There's a lot of confusion, confusing words in our space that some people have been operating on an autopilot with their definition since it was sort of originally spoken to them. And uh, the second video linked in the description is a funny one put out by Coindesk where it shows many so-called experts and a few real ones defining different aspects of Bitcoin and blockchain to where it produces a fairly brilliant bit of comedy. And uh, the truth is, it's a very meaty subject with layers you have to peel back and slowly define each one to really understand Bitcoin. You guys know I used to do a three-part series of understanding Bitcoin and uh probably do it again in the future and just sort of refine it. It's a, uh, it's an interesting way to sort of educate yourself is to try and teach it. So uh, where I took, I took three separate hours to define different aspects of the space. At the end of that presentation, I showed this screenshot, which is also linked in the show notes of a discussion on Twitter between Adam back, Eric Lombroso and uh, Luke Vest Jr. Towards the end of 2017. And uh, I think it's great. So, Adam is responding to someone who thinks they have a grasp of Bitcoin after reading the white paper. And uh, Adam says, quote, it's interesting how Bitcoin in some ways re relative in some ways is relatively easy to understand and then becomes more complex as you dig deeper. The understandability at different levels is a fortuitous feature, in my opinion. Close quote. Eric responded, quote, it's somewhat of a double-edged sword, though, in the sense that unless you go a little deeper, you can walk away with a superficial sense you understood it perfectly when, in fact, you do not. I've caught myself doing this a few times. Then Luke responds to someone in disarray after finding out it takes this long to understand Bitcoin, saying, quote, I think all of us are still learning better how Bitcoin works as time goes on. We were fools a year ago, relatively speaking. And then uh, he replies again, saying that, you know, we'll be fools again a year from now. So uh, 
So I show this to take a little pressure off people who are newly entering the space and feel overwhelmed trying to understand it. It's a good way of showing some of the greatest minds are still working with it too. I'll try and I'll try and boil it down. Like what is Bitcoin in a few sentences just for the uh, fun of it. And uh, maybe you guys got one too. This happens to me on a fairly regular basis whenever I start talking about what's all going on and people want to know what it is. So I'm going to type this up last night. Bitcoin is this, and you guys can laugh at this or, you know, create your own definition, chop it up. Bitcoin is a system that uses software, hardware, and meat space to create an immutable ledger. Bitcoin with a capital B refers to the consensus network layer of the protocol. Bitcoin with a lowercase b refers to the unit of account. The price is subjective to space, time, and politics. <laughs> and uh, that's just like a, I don't know, funny. That's it's kind of petty, yes, but, you know, it's hard to really just like type it up real quick. I'd say uh, a lot of these bcashers and fake Toshi visionaries have been defining Bitcoin for a long time based on some faulty assumptions of either money, trust, or security. Those seem to be the big words where a lot of people function on this autopilot without having them been defined through objective reality. Anyway, just a little fun from Tabcon. Did you guys have any uh, quick definitions of Bitcoin or any comments from the thread? Yeah, Bitcoin is the blockchain that as of 105 Central Standard Time PM has this block hash at the tip of the chain. That's a good way to define it. <laughs> All right, Janine. Janine, did you have a quick definition of Bitcoin? No, I just, I laughed quietly to myself when you said that uh, that guy was well-respected in Bitcoin. Isn't he like the brony dude? <laughs> you talking about I'm, Daniel? Yeah. When has he ever been respected? I have never respected him. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, like whenever I came in, everybody kind of pointed to the Nakamoto Institute as like one of the major places to go learn stuff. And so, yeah, just his name on Nakamoto Institute kind of put his name up there a little bit. I mean, I had some respect for him early on coming in the space. It wasn't until really you start to see like the way people think that you're kind of like, okay, maybe I shouldn't have put somebody a little bit too much up on a pedestal, but anyway no he was one of those people that gave me the creeps like right away <laughs> just because he ran the nakamoto institute i mean most of that was just documents um i never really was interested in his commentary <laughs> i'll tell you he's got some funny commentary from time to time <laughs> the way that he sees bitcoin so i get a, a yeah it's a I don't know. It's comical. It's one of those things where if you ask people in different parts of the world and at different times in their life, they'll probably have a different definition for Bitcoin. But yeah, it's uh, just use block hashes. Yeah. All right. We'll just like keep the next uh, keep that block explorer open and just say uh, this is Bitcoin. <laughs> Alrighty, so I guess we're ready to move on. Yeah, let's uh, continue on. Righty, well, next up, uh, Bitmain what? is trying to release a new round of seven nanometer chips this year. 
and they are claiming 30 joules per terahash, a 28% improvement in power efficiency compared to their last 7 nanometer chips. Being made using the TSMC 7 nanometer FinFET process, which is what led to them having a shit ton of unusable chips in their last 7 nanometer fabrication attempt. So, I mean, honestly, this is, one, an announcement that's coming out right when the, the next story, uh, which we'll get into in a minute, is being dropped of huge losses during quarter three. And second, like Bitmain has not been able to hit their efficiency targets as far as electrical consumption. And I mean, the last time they uh, made an announcement with seven nanometer chips and then finally shipped a product, they got busted red handed trying to push figures of just an isolated chip by itself's power consumption instead of the actual power consumption at the wall of an entire device. So they were very much fraudulently misrepresenting the actual specs of the machine that they were trying to sell. And, you know, this is coming in the midst of a huge cash squeeze, which is also coming while their IPO is looking very much like it's going to just completely founder and fall through. And on the tail of them literally lying to numerous pre-IPO investors to get cash because they were running out of cash reserves. So, like, honestly, like, I fully expect this to be a repeat of the last product that they announced. It's not going to actually hit their claimed electrical efficiency targets. And really, at the end of the day, like, they're, they're still in debt to TSMC. So like this, this, this is not a sustainable thing going forward unless they can actually pay off those debts or eventually they're going to get cut off from even being able to fabricate new chips to sell in the first place. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's one of those things where it's like, what can you say? Things are looking the same as they were the last time we checked in. And it's not good. I mean, um, you know, it is the return of Jahan. He finally tweeted again about this. And like you're saying, I mean, things just don't look like they're going to add up correctly. It's, um, I don't know. It's one of those things where it just doesn't look that great of a roadmap for Bitmain from here on out. But, I mean, they're trying to change things. I know that they have been doing some restructuring and everything. So we'll see how it goes. Mm -hmm. I guess any input on this before we move along, Janine? Janine. Nope. <laughs> no comment. Oh, alrighty. Well, then I guess next up is uh, another leak from Bitmain and more information having to be filed uh, <laughs> for their IPO proposal. So uh, pretty much they lost uh, $500 million in the third quarter of 2018. And it's like the, that this half a billion dollars that they've lost due to the plummeting market, the, the drop in sales, 
the like all all of the baggage of the liquid assets that they've had to deal with and <laughs> i mean like we still haven't even gotten to quarter or quarter four yet like this is just unbelievably wrecked and at first uh coindesk reached out to bitmain and they denied or declined to make any kind of comment uh, on these figures citing the ipo but afterwards a chinese media outlet uh quoted an unnamed representative for bitmain who claimed that the rumors are not true and we will make announcements in due course in accordance with the requirements of relevant laws and regulations and i just found this very interesting because they refused to comment to a major English language publication at all on these figures, but they've put out at least anonymously, uh, as far as the, the actual person who made the statement, a denial of these figures in, you know, Chinese media. So they're comp they're playing uh, different media covering the story completely differently based on the language that the material is actually being printed in. And obviously, you know, given that their IPO is on the Hong Kong stock exchange, that's mostly going to be a Mandarin speaking audience. And so like this, it's just, this is, it smells exactly like the kind of manipulative and false statements that were made leading up to them filing for an IPO, claiming companies like Tencent invested in Bitmain when they had done absolutely nothing of the sort, misrepresenting their balance sheet, the, the fact that people who did not invest in the company were, were claimed to have invested to other investors to try and pull in money. Like they were pretty much just being completely fraudulent in the way they were going about attempting to raise capital before filing for an IPO. And this just smells exactly the same. And I mean, like, this isn't even the whole of it. Like, BTC King, which has been a completely accurate source since he started leaking information from Bitmain, is pretty much claiming that they dumped most of their uh, their Bitcoin reserves. So they had around 22,000 BTC as of the last time we saw figures and now only have six. They had 1.2 million Bcash and are now sitting on only 750,000. And so when you really look at the, the losses drawing down on that, like the, the losses over quarter three are more like 700 million when you factor in the losses that they've taken on their holdings like Bcash. So they have literally lost almost three quarters of a billion dollars in one quarter. And again, like I said, when we were discussing their, their announcement, this announcement is made poof right when all of this financial information starts circulating around it's it's obviously a distraction type move, exactly like the announcement of their water cooled S nines when the the first stream of information was piling out from BTC King 
regarding their IPO and their financial figures. I mean, it's 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 just the, the same pattern at this point over and over. Bitmain has financial information leak that just shows they're completely wrecked and pissing through money. And they just announce a new product and try and distract from that. Like th this company does not, not have any chance, in my opinion, of actually getting listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So that's going to leave them completely devoid of being able to raise public capital which is going to leave them with private investors only. And it's not looking good in that dynamic because they literally lied to a shit ton of private investors to try and get money out of them before the IPO. And there's likely going to be lawsuits that eventually result from that. And they're, they're just sitting on like shit coins that are dropping like a rock in value. And if they try to actually liquidate them well, they're just going to drop even faster and suffer more paper losses. Like they're in a hole that I don't see any way how they could actually dig themselves out of it. And, you know, honestly, like if Bitmain goes down, like I really think like that is it as far as consumer facing ASIC companies at any scale. Like I, I don't think like they'll disappear i don't think there will literally never be a company again who produces asic miners to sell to retail consumers but they're never going to grow to the scale again like it, it's it's just not sustainable as a business model at this kind of scale and i really, really think like I look at what's going on with bitmain the more confident i am that the mining ecosystem is going to become a vertical integration stack where people mining are designing or taking open designs, manufacturing them themselves, installing and operating them and operating farms. And I mean, as, as much as I am not a fan of Bitfury on any level whatsoever, like they're starting to show that transition. Like they did not expand to the scale Bitmain did and try to push into consumer markets. They kept themselves small. They kept themselves sustainable. And they're not trying to branch out into consumer markets as Bitmain's floundering. They're moving towards that vertical integration of manufacturing all the way to the farm operations. And like at, it is unavoidable at this point, in my opinion, to... Like that, that's where mining is going. That's how that ecosystem and that market's gonna play out because it's not sustainable really any other way at any kind of large scale. Yeah, I mean, uh, for sure, it looks like uh, BTC King has kind of been dead on with those leaks. And uh, yeah, I was just pulled one up. Where'd it go though? Oh, man, I lost it in a series of tabs. But uh, it was talking about they only had 6,000 in BTC and 750,000 in BCH. And, yeah, like you're saying, I mean, they're just sitting on a pile of shitcoins there. And it just hasn't been good market for anybody. And like we've been seeing in this mining ecosystem, a lot of it is about can you weather these bear markets. And the last bear market, I mean – 
Jahan and Bitmain were pretty much dominant, and I guess they kind of thought they would be in the same spot, and they were able to just, you know, convince people that Bcash was Bitcoin and that they were going to be <laughs> the biggest company in Bcash world is Bitcoin, but that just didn't happen. The reality was uh, a different situation, and yeah, seeing them push different narratives and different languages and you know, like releasing the seven nanometer as these uh, financial statements are getting posted. It's it's pretty evident they're just trying to, you know, save their life right now when it comes to funding. All right. Any input on this, Janine? No, I'm too busy trolling people. <laughs> Miss Trolley. You want to tell us what's going on with uh, the uh, new core date? Oh, you mean the hardware wallet integration? Sorry. Right. right yeah. Right. Sorry. Got distracted. Um, so I think I don't remember how many episodes ago. I think there's only a few. Um, that I mentioned the the hardware wallet integration that was being developed separately by Chow um, to have hardware wallets work with Bitcoin Core was um, added to, I think it was like a staging repository for changes to be made to Bitcoin Core. And now it, the commit has actually been merged as far as I can tell into the 0.18 release which means that uh, I think it was like Trezor, Ledger, Digital Bitbox, um, KeepKey, a bunch of the hardware wallets will now be compatible with Bitcoin Core. So you can keep your keys on a hardware wallet and you know broadcast the transactions using and verify transactions using Bitcoin Core. Um, at the moment, it's still in the command line and it's manual. So it will obviously you know be difficult to use, but presumably there's going to be more development on that in the future so that the interface will be better because um, already I think because Andrew Chow is no Andrew Chow was working on this but there's a um, I can't remember his name there was a person that was recently added as the wallet maintainer for Bitcoin Core and I assume that that will probably be on the agenda to create some kind of tab or interface in Bitcoin Core to make it easier to use the hardware wallet integration, but I'm pretty excited about this. Do you know if they're uh, supporting cold card? Um, I did, uh, I'll look really quick at the chart. Um, we'll open it. I remember seeing it on the list, but I don't know if it was fully supported yet. So I'll check really quickly. So discuss amongst yourselves for a second. Well, yeah, this is something we've been waiting for a little while, right? Hardware mm -hmm. wallet integration might be able to get uh, some. Uh... Yes, cold card. Um, it has support planned, implemented. Yes, um, XPub retrieve S message signing. Yes, there's still. I think cold card has the most um, NAs. Like, not can't get an answer on it, but yes, it will be supported. Deploy, implement. Faster, boo! Yeah, but yeah. This is this is a huge thing. I mean, like right now, pretty much the only option is use 
uh, Chris Belker's Electrum personal server. And I mean, like that is a nice solution and I've been using it since he developed it, but it's still a big bar for non-technical people. I mean, you know, I, a lot of people in this space are like, you have to add some things to a config file and type a few commands in the command line. But like, that is a high bar for somebody who has no clue what they're doing. Like a command line for people who don't use it is something very off-putting. Like the, the formatting for a configuration file, the, like these are things people are not used to. It's something that makes them nervous and just is off-putting. And it's like, it is just too much for a lot of people out there. And being able to literally just start core with a GUI and use it directly would be a huge bonus. And I mean, you know, it's, I'm glad Belker took the time to write the EPS, but I mean, once this is merged, I'm probably going to shut that down and just use core itself. I mean, there's no real reason to keep using EPS if I can just use core itself. Right. I mean, that's been one of the big things is like, you know, yeah, you got your Bitcoins in your hardware wallet, but did you send them to the core client to actually verify that it's Bitcoin? And, you know, it's come on. Like, uh, yeah, it's about time we get this integration put in and people can use their hardware wallets with the core client. That's a good thing. We're starting to see some stuff where people want the uh, want a hardware wallet for the Wasabi wallet. And, you know, Wasabi's making moves with the coin join. So it'd be pretty interesting to see all that uh, kind of come together pretty nicely timed. So, uh, yeah, good stuff. Mm -hmm. All right. So we pretty much uh, done with that. So, man, what is going on with BitPay? Yeah, so this this is is really hysterical. Uh, this is another thing stopping to crit pulled from the joke known as TabConf. Um, <laughs> and yeah, lots of jokes from. So there. pretty much, yeah, yeah. This this is absurd. Um, so for those who don't remember, back during the UASF, um, I forget the name of the conference, but Stephen Pear was on a panel with um, Eric Lombroso, Jamison Lopp moderating, Bobby Lee, Peter Rizun, and somebody, I, I'm forgetting his name right now, um, I think Lee Andrew from Purse. Uh, oh, consent, it was Consensus 2017. And he made a comment that um, the, the UASF was reckless and dangerous and, and um, we need to increase the block size because BTC has stopped working for us at BitPay. And th this was like part of the, the rationale like BitPay had for supporting 2X. Like this, we need the block size increase. Like it's not going to keep working. Like we, we need it. Well, a week or so ago at TabConf, um, he was asked, how did BitPay decide whether or not to support an altcoin with numerous people screaming, like, support our shitcoin, support our shitcoin. And his comment was, we tried to look at it 
from a market demand and technology perspective. Uh, during the ABCSV splits, uh, both sides asked us uh, to support their coin, but we run Bitcoin ABC and that's not changing. But 95% of our payments are done in BTC. And I just find it hysterical that two years later, after this whole public shit show and, and fear mongering about how Bitcoin is going to stop working for payments, we need to increase the block size and then going full retard and crafting this image of Bcash users everywhere and it, it being much more widely supported for payments to justify like actually supporting payments in Bcash and 95% of their payments are done in Bitcoin. Two years after he claimed on stage in support of Segwit2x that Bitcoin has stopped working for us. 95%. And I think like it, it's important to like actually look back and, and call these things out in context when they happen because it, it just goes to show the horse shit coming out of their mouth and the malicious intent behind it. He was, he was literally pushing for a contentious hard fork with a number of other centralized malicious businesses in this space and trying to rationalize it with, we have to do this or people won't be able to buy things with Bitcoin anymore. And two years later, the super majority of his business is processing payments in Bitcoin. I mean, like, you, you can't get any more crystal clear as to how full of shit he is than that. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm sure he's uh, maybe he's kissing. He's like thinking, okay, these guys kind of helped me out because, uh, you know, BTC's still here and I still have a business where uh, 2X might have just absolutely tanked uh, what we were trying to achieve or would have. And uh, so, yeah, it's... Uh, it's kind of crazy that he was like just a couple of years ago, him and uh, quite a few others from in this space were yelling about how it had to have this block size increase. It had to go that way. And yeah, it's, uh, it, it's just evident that now like through, yeah, what they're making money off of that they were wrong, but I doubt we'll uh, see them admit it. And uh, they'll probably keep trying to push what they're pushing, which is, uh, at just 5% of their business model. So good luck with that 5%, guys. Mm -hmm. It's like he, he tries to sit here and claim that the, the rationalization for it is market support. Like 5% of your business doesn't seem at all close to justifying all of the infrastructure, support staff, procedures, and everything to do that. I mean, like, I honestly think as pointless and as much of a dead end as, and a scam as it is, if they supported Litecoin, it would be doing more than 5% of their overall volume. Oh, man. Yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of a joke over there, but, you know, they take it seriously and everybody's a little fervent about the way that they see this thing getting built out. So let's uh, talk about... Our, uh, yeah, did you have any comment on this one, Janine? No, no it's the Mt. Gox next. 
Oh, wait. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that. So there's the infrastructure part that we're just talking about. Like, can you build that out? Well, let's talk about what was built out uh, with this whole milk Gox scenario. All right. So I'm sure you guys might have seen that Peter McCormick of the What Bitcoin Did podcast was able to wrangle the Mount Grox crew in a series of interviews trying to shed some light on this foggy patch in Bitcoin's history. The first episode with Jed McCaleb came out the other day, and uh, just a few hours after we saw this uh, tweet from BitMEX Research, which is uh, linked in the show notes, but I wish I'd archived it because uh, they actually deleted it. It's, uh, it's all right, though. After I saw the tweet, I listened to the podcast and wrote up some notes. So the tweet speculated whether Mt. Gox was solvent at the time of the handover to Mark Carpellis. Jed McCaleb bubbled mumbled through his words while maintaining the exchange was short $50,000 or some 600,000 Bitcoin at the time of the handover. Now, uh, during the podcast, Peter asked Jed, what other trading platforms did he look towards to build out from to which he responded that he had just a, an interest in trading as a hobby. And it seems sort of straightforward that it wasn't rocket science. And uh, Peter later asked, what was the security back in? to Jed responding, saying uh, weird things were happening and uh, which was this was one of the reasons why uh, for handing it off to Mark was because the security needed to be built out. Plus, he had no interest at this point in the business itself. And uh, then Peter asked about the handover, like, how did it go? And he was talking about how it went in stages. First, he got access to the server with hot wallets, then the domain and lastly, the cold wallet. And uh, later on, Peter brought up that Ken Nelson report. And uh, Jed said that he didn't agree and he doesn't know what his definition of insolvent is. And uh, he says there was somebody running it who had funds to pay people. Yeah, it was fractional reserve. When Mark took over, it was short $50,000, but was on pace to make a million. There was barely any Bitcoin in the safe when Mark took over. It was around $30,000 at the time. Then shortly after Mark had access to the cold wallet is when it was hacked at which point the discussion turned to what to do he should he said he could have made he could have he could make the bitcoin back in fees half the fees were in bitcoin anyway and then the other half could be uh you know converted from fiat to bitcoin and uh that was the nefarious gox bot that everybody talked about and uh peter asked if jed holds any responsibility for what happened and he says uh, i definitely could have found someone other than mark but had zero control after he took it over. It was frustrating, but not stressful. It's uh, kind of tragic or funny. I don't know which that uh, Mark was just running a DNS business that accepted Bitcoin and met Jed in an IRC channel. And Jed was just trading as a hobbyist. And it sounded like they both just sort of came together and had really not much clue what they were getting into. And uh, it just sort of exposes that, um, you know, they weren't exactly secure whenever this cell happened. They certainly weren't uh, completely solvent when it happened. I mean, uh, you know, the description of insolvency and uh, the labels of that and uh, how exactly it all became a bankruptcy. I mean, uh, they're still pushing out. I mean, uh, Peter McCormick is still putting out these interviews, and I'm sure we'll learn some more as time goes on. But uh, yeah, to me, it's sounded like they were already uh well on their way to insolvency when the handover happened with mark and uh i know we've kind of speculated that on the past but did you guys have any comments on this matter 
Uh, uh, yeah, actually, uh, I got a screenshot of the uh, the tweet that I'll put in the show notes after the show. But, uh, yeah, I it mean, does. this is mm-hmm. like pretty much it's just a short clip of the transcript. But uh, it's pretty much Peter McCormick uh, said, Kim Nelson said Mount Gox was insolvent before you handed it over. And Michaela responded, well, I don't know what his definition of insolvent is, but, like, it wasn't insolvent. There was somebody running it that had funds to keep it alive and pay people if needed to be. That's not insolvent. And McCormick follows up. I guess the point was more that it was possibly operating in a fractional reserve at that point because it didn't have all the Bitcoins for all the customer accounts. And now this gets a little long, but McCaleb's response to that is, Erm, yeah, but that's just like, I mean, I don't know. That doesn't seem like, given the scale of the thing, like basically when Mark took it over, it was short maybe like I think $50,000 or something like that. It was on pace to make 100000 It was. It, it was two months later. It was on pace to make like a million dollars. That that amount of loss is, is just totally irrelevant to the actual business. And that's like normal operating for any kind of startup. You 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 always operate at a loss. That's like no big deal. You you don't expect to break even from day one. So I don't know. It, it wasn't like it wasn't it shouldn't have been impactful to Mount Gox's business or anybody's ability to get their Bitcoins back. And all, all of those erms and stutterings are exactly as transcribed from the show. So that that's literally the manner in which he answered these questions. <laughs> yeah, you could tell he was definitely a little shaken up from the interview and he had mentioned that he has an ongoing lawsuit that he wouldn't, that he didn't want to talk about. And, um, yeah, it just doesn't sound good at all as far as the way the whole handover and sell happened and what all does this mean for Mark Carpellis and the trustee and uh, what exactly is going to happen in the future with this. is It's still up in the air. It's hard to say. I mean, um, I was listening to a little bit of uh, Mark's discussion before I kind of had to shut it down last night. And uh, yeah, it just sounds just as confusing from his side, too, as far as like uh, the handover and what all was going on. You know, he sounded like, uh, yeah, it was obvious there was some problems, but I thought we could fix it. It kind of like the price ran away from him and the volume ran away from him to where he didn't have any staff and it just kind of got way out of hand real quick. And but there was problems from the beginning. So, yeah, it's it's a real complicated situation. There was a lot of people's money tied up in that to where, you know, there is this duty to make sure that it's secure. And it did sound a little bit like, you know, yeah, Jed took it with this attitude of like this is just a startup it could fail i mean like there's only a couple thousand people trading this thing it's not even that important it doesn't even sound like it's going to be i mean it could be successful it couldn't be successful who knows it's just up in the air and and that's the way that the whole system kind of got built out and it definitely uh, left uh i mean you know look at the way exchanges have been run over the past uh you know four or five years like uh, yeah just the past few years and you got to think about this was the first exchange. I mean, there wasn't really any sort of, hey, you know, I should set up this sort of security and I should think about this due diligence. And it just wasn't there. And uh, this was just a Magic the Guard card, Magic the Gathering card trading platform that, you know, the guy had an interest in Bitcoin and the guy he was selling it to was accepting Bitcoin and uh, ran a DNS hosting service. It's uh, kind of weird. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I'm definitely not excusing Mark Carpellis from blame or saying that he did not like take and use customer funds for his own personal shit. He clearly did, but like I have always had the sense that Mark kind of just took over an already burning ship and had no clue what the fuck he was doing. And I mean like yeah, he he embezzled funds, it looks like. Yes, he like ran a complete shit show of a business, but it was already a shit show when he took control of it. Like I honestly like personally think that McCaleb and Carpell is like both share responsibility for what ended up happening. Like that it, it's not one or the other that's wholly to blame. Like this was a, a burning pile of shit that McCaleb tossed to Carpellas and like neither of them took the time to like put it out or actually get things in order. Like it's it it really is like just a completely absurd situation that just is a perfect demonstration of just how much of a total wild west Bitcoin was when it really first like came into being and things started building up around it into an actual ecosystem. Yeah, I think uh, he was right in his statement saying it's really hard to contextualize what it was like back then whenever it was just a few thousand people in a forum and how quickly that whole thing took off. And uh, yeah, it's definitely an interesting time. And I also think that uh, there's a little bit of responsibility to bear on both ends. But also just given the uh, circumstance, it's just like it's it's understandable that things were very much uh just move fast and see what's going to build out. But you break things along the way. So who else is breaking things along the way, Janine? Yes, well, speaking of steaming piles of shit, um, yesterday Coinbase announced that they had acquired Neutrino, which is a blockchain intelligence platform. And in the Medium post, they say, Neutrino's technology is the best we've encountered in the space, and it will play an important role in legitimizing crypto, making it safer and more accessible for people all over the world. Led by some of the world's leading blockchain engineering and security experts, Neutrino will continue to operate as a standalone business based out of our London office. We're excited to welcome them to the Coinbase family, end quote. Now, in itself, the fact that Coinbase bought a blockchain surveillance company is bad news in itself. But notice, uh, if you go to the Medium post, they don't even link to the website or social media account for Neutrino, even though Neutrino has a website. Now that seems a bit weird. I wonder why they did that. So for some people who were curious enough to actually go to Neutrino's website, which now has a blurb saying, we are pleased to announce that Neutrino has been acquired by Coinbase, their description says that they use proprietary technologies to develop solutions for monitoring, analyzing, and tracking cryptocurrency flows across multiple blockchains, providing actionable insight on the whole cryptocurrency ecosystem. Again, bad news enough. But when you go to the company page, which lists the people working at Neutrino, the CEO is listed as Giancarlo Russo, 
The CR CRO is Marco Valeri, and the CTO is Alberto Ornagani. Or I can't, can't pronounce these names. Um, now, if you are not in the information security space, you probably don't recognize those names at all. You're like, why does that matter? But I did recognize those names because it turns out that all three of them were key people at an Italian company, which still exists currently, although it probably has extremely bad business, called Hacking Team. Giancarlo is the former CTO of Hacking Team, and Marco and Alberto are founders, and as far as I can tell, they're still at Hacking Team. Now, if the name Hacking Team didn't ring a bell for you, they build and sell surfence, uh, offensive intrusion and surveillance capabilities to governments, law enforcement agencies, and corporations. They have harmed so many journalists and activists around the world that Reporters Without Borders even list them as an enemy of the internet for, quote, selling products that are used by authoritarian governments to commit violations of human rights and freedom of information, end quote. In Egypt, Mexico, Spain, Turkey, South Korea, Singapore, Thailand, Kazakhstan, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Oman, Lebanon, Mongolia, Morocco, Sudan, Russia, Australia, and Brazil. Yes, Australia is a bit fascist too. Latin America is one of its biggest markets, particularly for their remote control systems. Now, luckily, in July 2015, which is a few months after I joined Twitter, hundreds of gigabytes of their internal emails and documents were leaked on BitTorrent, and a full archive is available and searchable on WikiLeaks' website. So if you want to see some of the organs of their internal operations, you can. Um, I have a blog post summarizing uh, that leak and some of what was found in it on my website. If you want to know more about what they have done in particular, um, there are a number of reports on them from Citizen Lab and several media outlets since 2012, which I linked to in a thread on Twitter about this. So anyway, if you know anything about me, by now you probably guessed that I am very predictably, absolutely, positively pissed about this. I know that we've criticized Coinbase a lot uh, here on Digest, and I don't think I really need to list off any prior episodes to give examples of that being a topic frequently, but this is really the nail in the coffin. This is now gloves off for me. This is bigger than Bitcoin. Coinbase, you are paying people who contributed to the murder, the torture and harassment of civilians. These are people who come from an industry that produces software that is not only used by governments illegally in a lot of cases, but is repurposed by others to spy on their significant others, mostly women. They know this. If you read the emails in the WikiLeaks archive of their emails, they are fully aware that their software is being used for these purposes and they do not care. They do not care about the harm they have caused. All they care about is not being caught, not being held responsible for the families that have been targeted because of what they have built and the blood that has been spilled. Now, if you think this is even close to the same level of betrayal as the embarrassing antics from the scaling debate, you are wrong. If you think that you're just going to quietly hide under a rock like Bitfury currently is until this blows over and the privacy activists will just go away, no. I highly doubt that the three of you, I'm including Brian Armstrong and Balaji in that, 
I highly doubt that you were stupid enough to not do a background check on these guys before buying their company. It is so obvious who they are. But on the off chance that you were that incredibly oblivious to acquire a company run by people who knowingly develop software that violates human rights, you have some major explaining to do either way. This is beyond, like this is not only embarrassing that Coinbase is held up as like an on-ramp for people in Bitcoin, that needs to be destroyed. Like this is the end of playing nice. You're going to be paying people who literally hurt people in more countries in more countries than I can name or remember. You are on the shit list now. There, like I said, gloves off. This is done. I am not recommending. I mean, I've never recommended. In fact, I've said since the beginning that I don't use Coinbase, I will never use Coinbase. And this absolutely solidifies it. Not only that, I will actively make sure that people are aware of who is working within your company, what kind of software you're using and the history behind that software, because I am not going to let you hurt any more people. Yeah, this was pretty uh, crazy. I mean, Conbase has really been conning lately with the uh, things they've been pushing out. And this one is just like you're saying, it kind of uh, takes the cake and really does, uh, I mean, really does kind of pushes into like active mode of like making sure that people understand that these uh, acquisitions that you're coming up with right here is uh, really detrimental towards the system, the ecosystem and you know, this being just like a, a way for people to easily onboard and have the ability to trade some few currencies that they think might do good is definitely not going to really, uh, I mean, this is just like what they're doing. It could definitely just really hurt where we're going. And it's, we got to point it out. I mean, we did it with BitFury's Peach and this is a similar situation and you know, people think that their identities in like the way that they KYC themselves is not that big a deal, but you never know down the line what's going to happen with the way that these regulations and laws get rid. I mean, it's starting to look like things could turn out well, but I mean, at any moment, you know, things could be to where like if you're, uh, you know, because most of these Coinbase users are U.S. citizens. And, uh, you know, if you're a U.S. citizen, I mean, we're still kind of, uh, you know, under the thumb of all this uh, heavy infrastructure that's been built up over the years that is just uh, completely inefficient at really achieving anything. But if they want to put the pressure on someone that they think is uh, doing harm to what they're trying to achieve as far as building out this surveillance state, I mean, it could it could be heavy. I mean, it's one of those things where I really do kind of uh, have moments where I'm like worried, like, OK, take a little bit of a risk putting your neck out there, but I think it's worth it. We do live in a free country. We have the right to free speech. We're supposed to have a right to privacy, a right to due process. These things are what we would call our inalienable rights. I mean, this is what our country is supposed to stand for. So if we do get this kind of pushback within our own country, it just is uh, further evidence that we shouldn't be here as far as like the idea of where free speech is. I mean, we can't allow it. I mean, it, we just can't. The U.S. is like one of the is the bastion of free speech. And this is not available in the U.K. It's not available in Tokyo. It's not available in China. And if we lose free speech, we lose the battle of ideas. It's over.
I mean, yeah, it's a it's deadly series. And you know, my main issue with this is like there are legal limitations, like aside from terms of service, as to what Coinbase can actually do with your private information, like how far they can share that and distribute it. Owning their own chain analytics company, like they can now tie everything they have into that. Like all of the transactions withdrawing or depositing on chain identity can now be plugged into like this chain analytics software. It's no longer guesswork. It's no longer having to reach out to somebody else to actually tie something to a legal identity. They have all of that. Every single one of their customers, every deposit you've ever made to their platform, every withdrawal you've ever made to that platform or from that platform, your name is on it. And now all of that metadata can be applied to chain analysis. And the, the, the most fucked up part is it's completely statistical. It's totally just statistical guesswork. So now with all of the margin for error and the ability to incorrectly assess things on chain, all of that's going to have legal names tied to it. So like, it, really, in all likelihood, I think that this platform and Coinbase are probably what's going to lead to chain analytics data being used as the basis for prosecution or illegal action in court. And like people might think that's happened before. It has been used to gather other things in terms of evidence that have been used to convict somebody to be the basis of a charge. There has never been a legal action in this country that was based solely on chain analysis. And the, the way that Coinbase is purchasing this and the obvious way that this is going to be applied, I think that there's a very, very high likelihood that that is eventually going to result from this. Yeah, and I also want to add like, because in this thread where I point this all out on Twitter, um, one of the things I criticize Coinbase for is the fact that they interview people from you know, conflict zones, for example, the woman from Code to Inspire in Afghanistan, when they don't even service that country, they don't service the region there. So they're all being all high and mighty and you know, clickbaity about, oh, look, disadvantaged people, we need to help them, but we won't do anything ourselves. Well, at the time, I was critical of that, but you know, I mean, I'm still critical of that because it's bullshit. But, you know, isn't it a great thing that they have captured themselves so well into their little regulatory gilded cage that they might not even have the chance to hurt anyone outside of the privileged few who are allowed to access something like Coinbase, fully KYC'd, you know, dependent on where you live and things like that, whether you have documentation. Thank God they can't hurt, at least directly, they will indirectly hurt everyone else by, you know, decreasing privacy in Bitcoin. But thank God they can't directly hurt uh, those disadvantaged people that they claim to care about with this because the people that they just hired have. 
And one of the people that I'm really frustrated with is Meltem because she is actually, I featured one of her tweets. I didn't include her name when I screenshotted it, but her tweet is further up in my thread. Um, and so she's been responding to this whole thing with Coinbase saying, oh no, you're giving our data to the government on a silver platter. I'm not gonna use you anymore. And it's like, you are the same person who praised the fact that Coinbase hired a US federal prosecutor last summer. Did you not think that that was a red flag for this? Did you not think that that was a frog that was starting to boil? Some of us saw this coming. So for you to be all smug saying, I understand surveillance capitalism, it's like, maybe you don't because you didn't see the warning signs that everyone else was talking about, that everyone else saw. And then a bunch of people like her were saying, oh, the community is so toxic, blah, 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 because the, you know this is all about this. No, this is more than the scaling debate. And people saw this stuff way before you did, but you couldn't because you are in that gilded, the same gilded cage. You have become part of that now. So don't be smug about how well you understand surveillance capitalism or whatever the term is now that we want to call, you know, building things that violate human rights. But yeah, just really frustrated with people like that. Yeah, I think you, uh make a great point. I mean, a lot of people, you know, are so busy, they just uh, kind of got boiled right along with it. And uh, the way that this system kind of grew outward, and it's incredible to me how many people really do think they have a strong grasp of security and surveillance and the way that's all sort of built out and used. And it's, uh, it's severely misunderstood still by a lot of people in the space. So uh, yeah, it's like we kind of have to raise the alarms. <laughs> Too many people in this space are completely enveloped in trying to present themselves as all-knowing and always right, but they're never consistent. Like, they just flip-flop. They'll, they'll completely alter their view without acknowledging a previous one was flawed or explaining why their thinking on something changed. It's just, uh, I, I said this instead of that now, but I, I've always known this. I'm always right. It's like, th this is a huge problem in this space that more people need to call out. Like these people just act like all of their past statements and actions never happened. And most of this ecosystem just lets them get away with it. Think you could help, man. God fucking damn. Oh, there you You're go. Back. You're back. You're back. Yeah, right don't on. let people get away without with pretending that like they have always thought something when their view changes to the polar opposite of what they used to say without admitting they were wrong, without admitting what changed their mind. Like call that shit out. Yeah, it's uh, hopefully more people are going to be called out on are going to be doing the calling out on this one because, uh, yeah, it's just this with the there's just a lot of stuff that needs to be called out. We need more people filing stuff to the CFTC, more people pointing fingers at uh, what Combase is doing here and trying to just get the word out. So, uh, yeah, let's continue on. We can we can 
talk. We know we're going to talk about Coinbase again. It's just going to happen. So uh, let's talk about Indonesia, right? We talked about Indonesia last episode. We covered Indonesia passing a new set of regulations that labeled cryptocurrencies as a commodity, which also included a lot of regulatory red tape for exchanges. It's uh, somewhat become common at this point to see these uh, due diligence laws in places for ex- in places with exchanges, uh, KYC, AML, record keeping, and functional departments to handle different aspects of the business. Well, it looks like uh, we've seen a lot of people moving away from these exchanges and going the more local peer-to-peer route of local Bitcoins. The volume surged in Indonesia up some 300%. According to the Coindance data, traders exchanged over 10.3 billion rupiah or $730,000 last week, which was uh, dwarfing the previous record of $319,000 set the week before. And uh, Bitcoinist notes how the consumer behavior is in line with Venezuela, which underscores a common misconception that local Bitcoins is an alternative to identity requirements and regulations. Yeah, local Bitcoins did make that change recently in 2018, where you would need to get partial verification on large volume traders. However, some people, you know, they say it's easier to trick a local Bitcoins dealer with a fake identity than a regulated exchange who has a department to handle identity verification. So, I mean, I could still see people moving over, even though there's these identity checks still in place. But earlier this month, people have been warning about these new EU directives that are coming that are coming down that could affect local Bitcoins to an even greater degree when it comes to regulatory compliance. Quote, the legal requirements are still being delineated, but it's already clear that it will bring major changes into the functioning of virtual currency exchanges. Quote, close quote, and or I should probably just keep the quote open here. So uh, the most important changes concerning local Bitcoin users will be related to improving the registration of new accounts and the identity verification process, including wallet withdrawal and trade volume based verification tiers, close quote. And uh, while these new directives could hurt local Bitcoins, it could also spur a competing website in a more favorable jurisdiction. They're going to fight us all the way to the finish line on this stuff. And I mean, uh, you know, the way these things kind of get built out, if the regulatory uh, environment doesn't really favor the business, we usually see something else crop up that's going to take its place. And uh, that could happen here. But yeah, seeing a large surge in volume in uh, Indonesia local Bitcoins, it looks like people aren't too happy about the way those regulations got played out the other week. Do you guys have any comment on this one? I couldn't even hear half of that because my connection's completely fucked right now. Ah, uh, that's all right. I have no comment. Yeah, it's just kind of a quick update. Another quick update we could get through here, uh, kind of round things out so uh, we can figure out this issue. So the CBOE and VanEck ETF. Okay, who wants to hear more about the ETF news, right? Yeah, well, maybe all the speculation will soon be coming to an end. At least uh, that's the way this Coindesk article has has framed it, saying at the beginning, quote, the SEC may make an initial decision on not one, but two different Bitcoin ETFs by April 5th. So the Bitcoin ETF proposal solicited for a second time by Vanek, SolidX, and the CBOE will be formally pushed published on February 20th today. So uh, which will kick off the initial 45-day clock, which puts the uh, decision time on the date of April the 5th. At which point they could approve, reject, or extend the deadline. 
Then there's the New York Stock Exchange ARCA and Bitwise ETF, which was filed on February the 15th. So it too will have a decision to be made at the beginning of April. And, you know, supposedly VanEck and SolidX are already getting some good feedback, even though the formal comment period hasn't officially opened yet. So it seems like maybe people are a little more bullish about this idea of this ETF approval going through in early April. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll get a surprise. I mean, like we've seen in the past, like these guys can uh, keep extending the deadline up to three times. And, uh, you know, we've seen refilings, government shutdowns. So there's ways that these things can go extended like a period of time. But um, I think, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, this is another filing. I mean, these things could bring a lot of liquidity to the space. And uh, it's something that Although it keeps getting reported to the point of ad nauseum, uh, you know, got to report it. So April, early April, I guess, is whenever we should be thinking maybe, maybe the ETF will actually get approved. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. Like, it's, the counter is ticking. I mean, they'll probably do what they've done, everyone, and push it out as far as they can, but... You know, things like backed are coming and we're starting to see more institutional exchanges pop up, even internationally. So, I mean, we'll just have to wait and see. But I think there is a very decent chance that the ecosystem landscape is a little different uh, when they actually get put against the wall to make a choice on this one. So we shall see. Yep. All right, man. All right, so I guess uh, that's a wrap and final thought time. I've got a final thought, man. So uh, everybody, I saw like, you know, this uh, pub pushing about this ARK Invest podcast and Elon Musk coming on this podcast and he said something about Bitcoin. He said about five sentences about it. But I, one of the things that kind of bugged me and uh, it looks like it bugged Matt too, Matt Adele, he says uh, – so this is what Elon says. I think actually one of the downsides of crypto is that computationally it's is that it's quite energy intensive, close quote. And uh, yeah, so uh, Matt says, hey, Elon, kind of close, but no eh? Bitcoin's proof of work actually adds an incentive to produce more in efficient energy that trends that tends to be renewable energy often stranded. And he's right. I mean, and this is like one of the great points we talk about a lot as far as like this energy argument and where this energy comes from and uh, what ex what exactly proof of work is doing in the ability to collateralize this, you know, cheap energy and uh, move it around. And that's something that it's kind of upsetting to see Elon have like that big of a misconception about parts of this ecosystem. I mean, he did say that he thinks Bitcoin structure is quite brilliant, but he, uh, you know, I mean, it's just like a, it's he's an engineer and I'm, I'm glad for the fact that he's like a, a you know, one of these people that's uh, people are looking towards because we need more engineers out there. But uh, yeah, I, would, I wish he kind of would take Bitcoin a little more seriously rather than thinking it's just a bunch of people scamming people and, um, you know, not really taking it that seriously. He should uh, he should give it a second look. He should uh, try and put all of the uh boring and the SpaceX and the ex-wives and all that stuff aside for a few weeks if he could. I don't know. Maybe he's just focused on too many things to where he can't really focus on it. But he needs some deep thinking on this one, Elon. I mean, uh, you know, everybody's been trying to get you to grab that LN trust chain, but 
I don't know if you're going to really figure it out yet. You, you still need to spend more time understanding what's going on here. And I know some of my friends with these Tesla cars are going to be real upset to hear this one. All right, Janine, you are up. So, yeah, the Coinbase story really, like, it's basically taken over my mind the entire day. It just made me so angry. And um, obviously, I already mentioned I have a Twitter thread on it. But now I want to see if I can get them to respond. So if you're going to, you know, engage with any of the tweets, engage with this one, because I've tagged not only Brian Armstrong, but Balaji, and also the person, I don't remember his position, but he wrote the Medium post announcing the acquisition of Neutrino. So I would like to get them to respond, and regardless of whether they respond to the tweet or if they respond elsewhere, if anyone sees them respond, please send it to me if I miss it somehow. Yes, it would be good to hear what they actually have to say about all this. Mm-hmm. And I guess my final thought is actually going to be a shout out today. Um, somebody has been putting together this website, uh, bitcoin-only.com, and pretty much building up a large amount of resources on things that are just Bitcoin. Like pretty much everything on here is devoid of shitcoin showing or integration or anything of the sort from wallets to hardware devices podcasts learning resources explorers like pretty much everything you would actually need to have a full rounded uh group of resources to access regarding just bitcoin like he is compiling a list on this site so i would highly suggest anybody in search of information uh check this out this is shaping up real fast to be a perfect place to start yeah, that's a really good, like, uh, you know, when that came out, uh, it's like questionable if we're, you know, we're going to get on there. We did get on there. And I mean, it is hard to be Bitcoin only. And I mean, uh, a lot of that, you know, people kind of get frustrated as to making that. But I mean, it's a it's a great resource for just getting somebody to try and uh, listen towards information that's there. Mm -hmm. So I guess that'll uh, wrap it up for the day. And uh, I guess we will see you all on Sunday. Adios, everybody. Later, everyone.